We're going to get into our last um, episode of uh, Titus uh, this morning. And, well, I was sick uh, last time. I was on my way to preach with Barry White's voice and Charles told me to <laughs> turn around and go home when I spoke to him that morning, um, which I think was fine anyway because he had something prepared to go um, and that was all good. Then we had the... Um, uh, the time at the north, and now we're getting back into it. You know the problem with sermon series. The problem when you're going through a, a book of the the book of, a book of the Bible, you can't actually just go. This is what I want to preach on, right? Uh, this is this is this is the theme that I want to say. This is the the thing that I want to say. And then, in order to say the thing that I want to say, I'm just going to find the scriptures that you know back up what I want to say here. You actually have to look at the Word and you have to preach the Word. Now, I say it's the thing that's wrong with them. It's actually the thing that's right with them, right? It's the thing that we get into the Word and have to go and preach what's there without being able to go, this is what I want to say. You have to get into what the Lord wants to say. And so we're going to get into uh, the Word this morning and... You know, I'm gonna. I'm just gonna go for it, right? We're not. We're not gonna pull any punches. I think Dan got you know the shortest straw out of everyone because the beginning of Titus is like hefty going, right? Like it is. It is um, a hard, hard word there. So Dan obviously um, uh, kicked us off, and he spoke about sound leaders. Now. Um, Sound, the, the whole concept here of sound leaders, there is stuff that we all should be taking, right, when we're, when we're listening um, to this. Christian mission is not about innovating, right? This is what Dan spoke about. It's not about innovating. It's about propagating. We're to preach not a new message, but an old message on the foundation of the authority and the apostles and prophets, and we cannot depart from the message that has been given to us. I mean, there's many that would want to, right? There's many who would find the message of the gospel old-fashioned, um, things that the Word brings up, you know, uh, um, not culturally appropriate, but we preach an old message. That's right. Thank God it's not cultural. And he spoke, uh, Daniel spoke about the qualifications of elders and leaders and that Paul intends for Titus to ensure his church has a qualified elder and that elders need to have a godly character and be competent to teach sound doctrine and confront false teachers. And sound leaders must have a godly character. They must have, a blame, they must have blameless relationships. We read about that in verse 6. Blameless conduct, that's verse 7 and 8. Uh, provide gospel witness, that's verse 9, and that that gospel witness looks like instructing others and rebuking opposers of the gospel. Then Nathan um, exegeted um, Little Red Riding Hood. Uh, no, <laughs> uh, Nathan then uh, spoke on sound doctrine um, from Titus 1 and from verses 10 through 16. Now, false teachers profess faith, but they don't have faith themselves. Their inauthentic faith is demonstrated by the way in which they teach and how they live their lives. They display an external veneer of religious devotion, but their deeds make their disobedience plain. Paul focuses on the importance of silencing false teachers, rebuking false teachers, and then most importantly, how we identify false teachers. Finally, then Ian spoke on uh, how good, uh, how gospel communities, sound doctrine, sound leaders are evidenced through transformed actions, good deeds, right? What are we being transformed into? The Christian life is to be transformed into doing good deeds. What we are being transformed into should be more like what we see God be like. Anything else is cheap grace. Salvation never leaves someone stagnant. You can profess Christianity without being a Christian. Christians ought to live godly lives. 
and we ought to test ourselves. And so today I want to focus on Titus uh, chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 16, and ask the question, if our behaviour is being transformed, if we are being transformed by the gospel, how then should we live? How then should we live? As the heirs of grace, as the heirs of God's grace to mankind, what graces do we show one another to the world around us? Now, Titus 3, verses 1 through 11, they actually continue the basic thought of um, chapter 2, 1 through 15, what Ian spoke through uh, a few weeks ago now, although many of the uh, specifics are different. A full knowledge of salvation demands obedience to God. To separate salvation and discipleship is to miss the full intention of God's plans. To separate the grace that we receive and the transformation of how we live is to miss the point. How can those who have died to sin still live in it? If we are those who have died to sin, if we are those who have been uh, buried with Christ and raised again with Him, if we are dead to sin, how can we then still live in it? Our actions should be evidence of our transformation. We see this in the world, right? We see this in the world all the time. It's quite frustrating that there are people who profess to be one thing, but when it comes to putting their money where their mouth is, they just do not act that way. You see, there's so much posturing in our culture. It's all about what you say, how you say it. They're empty words, right? Because when it comes down to it, the reality is the... The actions and the words don't match. You know, there's um, a, a video on YouTube about, um, you know, this guy going around asking people what they think about these hot button issues, right? Um, and asking them about all these vastly different cultural issues. You know, talking about... Um, you know, climate change and, and whatnot, uh, and people pr- saying the right things. But then when he further inquis- you know, inquires on them of how they're living their life, they're living their life totally incongruent to the things that they say. Christians cannot live like that. Incongruent to what we profess Paul wants the the Cretans who he's writing to, to live in such a way that their lifestyle is a witness to God, that their lifestyle is congruent with the things that they are professing. There is an emerging distrust in um, the the Near East in that that point of time, in that area. There's fairly new religion, these followers of the way, these followers of Jesus in the ancient world, there's a distrust uh, for them. And Paul has called those who follow the way of the cross to live without ethical compromise. But he also sees the negative reception of the Roman Empire to cults that were seen as rebelling against the, the authority of the Roman Empire. And the only way to counter this negative conception of Christianity was to live without reproach to live completely congruently to the message, to live in a way that cannot be challenged. It reminds me of the church today. We live in a culture that distrusts us, right? We don't live in a culture that sees the church as the centre of its cultural axis anymore. Once upon a time, maybe. 
whether or not that was a great access even then is under argument. Let's, let's be honest. Um, cultural Christianity is often neutral and um, neutered and impotent Christianity. But we don't live in a culture where Christianity is the axis of culture anymore. We live in a culture that sees us have, as having fallen short, as of being tested and failed. And in some ways, we deserve that. I'll be honest, in some ways, we've earned that. Many churches, the abuse that has been caused by incongruent teachers who profess Christ with their mouth and then go ahead and hurt children, hurt women, hurt the vulnerable. We see the negligence of churches where they've used the church's people to get what they they want or haven't cared for people well, the fraud that we've seen in churches, churches that have become more political than they've been faithful, that are more intent on promoting a, a wing of politics than they are to promoting Christ. We've seen that, right? We've seen that. We've seen that recently. See, in America, the church has become so politicized, right? So angrily pro-Trump in a lot of cases, you wonder if they're pro-Jesus at all. The church has, in many cases, fallen short. And what is Paul endeavoring to do here? When he's talking to the Cretans, live without reproach. Live in congruence to the message. I think things like abuses, negligence, fraud, politicized faith, they're actually symptomatic of people not living congruently to the message of Christ, congruently to the message of the gospel. So today we should endeavor to live beyond reproach because of the negative conception of faith because of our past poor witness. No one set out really to do these things. I don't think there was a church planted um, uh, to actually, you know, there was no church, I think, that said, you know, we're going to be the church of, you know, abuse, you know. It was planted for good reasons. But we need to build trust by living congruently to our message, not by living congruently to the cultural perception of what's right, but congruently to our message. You know, that's why Chanel and I are zealous for child safety in our church. That's why we need to be careful with how we handle money in the church and we have to fill out that stupid tithe sheet that I get confused on every time and you know, um, and try and do that to the best of our ability. That's why we need to be careful with how we spend our money. That's why we need to be careful about how we treat people. That's even why we need to be careful about how we speak about the government. There is a negative conception of the church and is not up to the world to change their view of us. It's up to us to live congruently to the message. And you know what? The world might not change its view. Who cares? Who cares? Who gives a rip if the world thinks that the church is relevant or not? The reality is we need to live congruently to the message of Christ and the gospel of Christ. There is no point in arguing that we're better than we are. I get very tired of that. I get very tired of people being an apologist for the church. Don't just be an apologist. Just live better, right? And we counter the negative conception of the world by living better than it. So with that uh, little preamble, let's actually get into the 
get into the Word now. Uh, chapter, chapter 3 of Titus, from verse 1. Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God, our Saviour toward man, appeared not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Saviour, that having been justified by His grace, we shall become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable for men. So let's start at the first point here, where Paul references good conduct and respect for authority. So in verse 1, Paul urges believers to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient and to be ready to do good. This highlights the importance of living in a manner that honours and respects both earthly authorities and God's authority. We are called to have zeal for God, but not to become zealots. Now we know who the zealots were, right? The zealots were a Jewish political group that were looking to overthrow um, uh, the rulers of the day because that, they, that's how they saw uh, their eschatological, that, their, the way uh, the Messiah would come about would be through the overthrow of um, these, uh, these rulers. Um, in our own words, we become zealots from time to time, don't we? Thinking that if we just support the right political party and if we yell down those that we disagree with, that, you know, our own eschatological vision will come to pass. Now, it's very uncomfortable for me to, to even think about this because, you know, war. this is a little bit of a... Um, a little bit of a uh, uh, ironic uh, statement because you know I, I grew up listening to Rage Against the Machine. Or, you know I went to a, been to a lot of protests in my life. Um, one point of time I was a rabid left winger, um, and um, and you know I I I don't think I grew up with a great deal of respect for authority. You know Dan probably hears stories about Nathan Flannery at Donvale still today. And the kid that used to throw erasers at teachers or, you know, throw them into the fans so that they would build more velocity to hit the teacher or, you know, those, those kind of things, you know. <laughs> um, the, the, kid who, the kid who had the idea to um, throw eggs at the year sevens but then froze the eggs before his peers knew that he had done it. So those, those kind of things, like, um, you know, I, I didn't live with a great deal of respect, the one who who came up with the idea of Miss Slavery, um, um, you know, guy who who made it very difficult for for his teachers. Um, and you know what? I didn't. You know, if they could see me now, so I think some of them would have their jaws on the floor. I mean, <laughs> like, um, but the reality is, you know. Beyond just living with disrespect for those kind of authorities, what we're seeing more and more in our churches is this reactionary hatred for Dan Andrews, right? Our, our, our premier, right? And the other day I'm on Facebook and I see this so-called pastor, right? And I, I mean, I know the guy. He's not a pastor, some reason he calls himself pastor on Facebook. I don't know. He thinks he's pastoring all of Facebook or something. And he 
And he writes this statement, F Dan Andrews and F his party. What a representative of Christ, right? Pastor. Come on. You just evidenced yourself as a false teacher, mate. So much hatred towards someone. Now, you know, I think there's some things that Dan Andrews have done that are absolutely disgraceful, right? I think there's some things that are ultimately very wrong. But the reality of this, that despite how people may view his political leanings and the things that he legislates and the way he, um, what he believes, it's not on him, it's not on him if Christians are speaking about him in disgraceful ways. That's on us. That's on us. Do you know what? He's not a Christian. And therefore, we shouldn't expect him to behave like one. But we are. And we should expect ourselves to behave like Christians if we're going to profess Christ, right? What if Paul wrote Titus 3.1, remind them to be subject to the rulers and authorities, to be obeyed, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle and kind, showing all humility to all men. Mind you, who's he writing this about when, you know, um, who's, who's in power at this point of time, Dan, when, when Paul's writing this? Yeah, <laughs> It's one of the Caesars, right? And they're all pretty bad. Like you could take, you could poke a stick at all the Caesars and go, well, they're not, they're not nice guys, right? What if Paul wrote, remind them to be subject to Dan Andrews, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak well of labour, to be peaceable, gentle, showing humility to all men. It makes me uncomfortable, right? I don't want to. It's a challenge for me. But we should, in the same way that God commands the Israelites in Jeremiah to seek the prosperity of the city in which God has placed us, therefore seek the prosperity of the city which God has placed us. Not through zealotry, not through anger, not through rage, not like behaving like the world, but through good conduct and respect for authority. I told you it's not picking what I want to preach on and going going for, for the scriptures that kind of go behind me. What do you say to this, right? How do you read? How do you read that verse and come up with any other conclusion? Knowing what Christians in that point of time in history were actually going through. Knowing that in not all too long, Christians in Rome would have you know, a copy of this letter, similar teachings from Paul, and would be tied up to stakes, fed to lions, burnt alive, dipped in hot oil. Yet, those people still behaved with good conduct and respect for authority. In fact, Paul becomes a really good picture of that, doesn't he? Eventually executed by this empire whom he's telling people to respect and to conduct themselves well within. I mean, we might want to cut these kind of scriptures out of our Bible. We might want to end up with the real holy Bible with lots of holes in it where we don't want to, uh, you know, we want to cut out those little verses and it becomes a real holy Bible 
But unfortunately, this book is full of things that we want to obey and think are great. And, you know, grace, thank you, Lord God, for grace. But I don't want to respect this noob who's in control of the state currently. The reality is we need to conduct ourselves differently. You know what's different to the world? Have you seen how activists treat people who disagree with them? Disgracefully, right? Disgracefully. I tried to have a conversation with someone when I disagreed with their point and they spat on me. They spat on me. Uh, yeah, and that was just Simon. No, sorry. No, no, sorry, no. no, no. The, the reality, right? Uh, they behave in, insane. There's no reasoning. There's no talk. There's no back and forth. There's no respect. There's no care. How do we behave differently? We, we conduct ourselves well. We don't go insane when someone disagrees with us. We don't froth at the mouth and spit at people. You disagree with us? Okay, we love you anyway. We care for you anyway. We speak well of you anyway. You're different? You don't agree with what I'm saying? Okay. We'll love you anyway. Isn't that the Christian way of living? Isn't that the difference towards us and the world? That we live, as Paul says in verse 2, to be gentle and peaceable, kind towards everyone. In fact, that's the epitome of right relationship with people, is to be kind towards everyone, including including your enemies. Now, you might not have any enemies but you probably do. Anyone's ever driven from Melbourne to Sydney, you've got enemies, road enemies, right? Yeah, you get them, you're driving along, and then they overtake you, and then from that moment, as they overtake you, that first car, that person is your enemy. And you have to, you know, all, the whole way up to Sydney, it's taking it, no, and then they're coming back around, oh, they're the road enemy, Shane, are you gentle and peaceable to your road enemy? <laughs> so they've got to be gentle and peaceable, right, to all, all these enemies, even the people that overtake us on the way to Sydney. You've got to be, got to be gentle and peaceable towards, towards people, even the people we perceive as our enemies, Right? When I first come, came to Uni Hill, I perceived that there was one person who didn't like me. I'm like, you're my enemy. Yeah, yeah I, was in a different, I was in a different, you know, space at that point of time. I was a bit different. But I just thought, you don't, you don't, you don't like me. You're my, you're my enemy. That man was Jordan Wakeland. And he's my best friend now. He's my brother-in-law. I introduced him to, you know, my sister-in-law so they could get married and we could be closer and become husbros, right? This, this is, this is the, one of the people I love most in the world. But I perceived that he was my enemy because he was also a guitar player. I was a guitar player. I was better than him. I thought he was jealous. You know, it's all, all those things. But we need to be kind and gentle to those even that we perceive might not like us, right? But the world doesn't do that. The world says, I'll give you what you give me. And if I perceive that you don't like me, well, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you that. I'm going to give you that I don't like you too. It's a toddler attitude, right? We have devolved in, um, in attitude down to um, the level of Scout as a society. You know, if Scout's angry, she'll tell you. If someone's mean to her, she'll be mean back. Why are you being mean to me? I want to watch Spider-Man or whatever it is. But we should be compassionate and understanding in our interactions towards others. 
We then go on. Titus chapter 3, verses 4 to 5. It emphasizes that God's kindness and love are the foundation of our salvation. For when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, uh, toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us abundantly uh, through Jesus Christ, our Savior. It's through God's kindness and love that we're saved, right? It's not based on our works or righteousness. It is based on His mercy. We have received unmerited favour. We have received love that God has bestowed on us that we often do not deserve. Often, often uh, too generous, I think. We don't deserve it, right? We are um, sinners before a holy God. But God has given us unmerited favour. And if we are to be imitators of God, if we are to imitate our God, then what are we imitating if not His character? And what does His character look like? God's character is kindness extended towards sinners. God's character is favour extended towards those that hate Him. God is merciful and His kindness is extended towards rebellious, sinful people. So who do we extend our kindness towards? The people that are kind to us? Or those we see as enemies, those who have done wrong to us, those that have hurt us. And you know what? We were all once rebellious people. We were all once rebellious people. Regardless of whether you came to know Christ as, you know, as a small child or whether you found Christ in your latter days, we have all once been a rebellious person. And if it wasn't for God's transformation, we'd still be in sin. But we are transformed through the kindness of God. That's how we're transformed, through God's kindness, His mercy, His grace. These words is how we describe what we've received in salvation, right? We haven't been saved through our good works. We've been saved through grace, mercy, kindness. So if we withhold that from others, we've become hypocrites. We've, we're actually behaving completely differently to the one who saved us. So go continue from verse 5. Being saved through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. This is, you know, called the washing of regeneration. Should remind us as believers that the transformative power of the Holy Spirit is bringing about a new birth and renewal of character. Ian posited this question in his message. What is a Pentecostal evangelical church doing talking about good works for? Don't we believe we are saved by grace, not good works? He posi- yeah, he posited the question in a positive way. It wasn't a negative question. It wasn't like, what are we doing talking about this for? But he, he asked this question, and I think it's a good question, because we should live differently. We should be transformed to live differently because of grace. And let me add on to his answer. If we are a people that believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but don't believe in the character transformation that it brings, then we are only 
Pentecostal in name. If we don't believe that the Holy Spirit brings character transformation and it just makes people speak in a different language and that's all, then we have neutered the Holy Spirit. If we don't believe that people change and change a lot when the Holy Spirit comes and indwells in them, then we do not actually act like a Pentecostal church. We're just a contemporary church with lights and a modern building. That's all, right? The fire of God brings regeneration. God's Spirit brings transformation. And we need to believe that when people are filled with the Holy Spirit, there is a deep transformation that takes place. I've said it before and I'll say it again. People don't change is some of the most commonly accepted crap that gets said in the church because it's garbage. It's wrong. People change and they change a lot when they encounter the living God. People change and they change a lot when the Holy Spirit comes and indwells within them. And if anyone tells you anything different to that, then they have swallowed the garbage of the world. Because we are not a people that believe in, you know, a, 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 a social, you know, um, muted church, right? We're not, we're not people that just believe that God doesn't do anything. We believe that the Spirit of God is alive, well, active, that the Word of God is moving in people's lives. We believe that God is moving and acting today. He is changing lives today. And if we believe anything different from that, we've actually departed from the Word of God. We are justified by God's grace. We are heirs in the hope of eternal life. You know, justified means to be judged righteous or acquitted, specifically in God's court. And we want justice against the guilty, which we see as just punishment, right? But God acquits the guilty of their guilt. He actually scrubs it away. And this underscores for us the significance of God's grace in forgiving our sins and granting us the gift of eternal life. We are heirs of God's unmerited grace. We don't earn it through good works, but we are recipients of it like an heir who receives their portion of an estate regardless of merit. Right? Regardless of merit, an heir will receive a portion of an estate. And if we're heirs of grace, the question then is, are we agents of it? Are we agents of it? Are we agents of grace? Because if we're agents of grace, we'll live differently. We'll devote ourselves to living well. We'll just devote ourselves in living the gospel and in so doing good. Do we deliver unmerited grace to others? So from verse 8, in this, Paul encourages believers to devote themselves to doing what is good. And it is a reminder for us that our faith should be reflected in our actions and that we should actively um, uh, engage in acts of kindness and service to others, different from the way that others live. Our kindness should be unassailable. Our kindness should be the hallmark of our interactions with others. Essentially, Paul is telling Titus how believers should relate to an unbelieving world through submission to governing authorities and grace to their unbelieving neighbours. Since God has been gracious to us, we must 
be gracious to others. Now, all of this is a continuation of Paul's thoughts in in 2.15, what Ian spoke about. And as such, Paul urges Titus to remind the Cretans of their social obligations to the governing authorities and their neighbours. At one time, Paul and Titus were also foolish and disobedient. But God's goodness and love appeared to them in order to save them. In language that places the gospel message at the very core uh, of, the, uh, of, um, uh, of this and in total conflict with emperor worship. Well, now, emperor worship, by the way, is a common cult of the time. And I've spoken about this before, but, you know, if you looked at a coin uh, and in that time, um, it would say King of Kings, Lord of Lords on the back. Ever heard of that statement before? Um, and so uh, early Christians actually uh, went, actually, this guy's not King of Kings, Lord of Lords. This guy over here who died on the cross and rose again after three days, he's the King of Kings, Lord of Lords. So he's actually placing the gospel message in complete conflict with emperor worship. Paul spells out what God has done for us. Any attempt to achieve righteousness on our own is of no avail. It's going to get nowhere. Instead, God's goodness and love through His mercy have brought salvation, which consists of a a cleansing and empowering by the Holy Spirit who who is given through Jesus Christ. Having been justified by God's grace, we now have an inheritance, a hope, which is eternal life. And God, the Father, initiates the process of transformation made possible through the work of the Son and completed by the Holy Spirit, because the faithful saying, those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works is focused and not, is God focused and not society focused. It should, it shows that good works glorifies God's role in the process of transformation. It is in fact the fruit of transformation. When we do good works, we're not doing it for society. It is not, it is not society focused. We don't do good works because we just want to be a benefit to society. We do good works as Christians because... We want to glorify God. It's actually where the term social justice kind of goes wrong for us, right? Because we want to seek the well-being of our communities, our country, you know, the countries of the world. But we don't want to do it for society. We want to do it for God. We do it because what God has called us to. And regardless of whether or not it's fashionable in 10 years' time or not, we're going to do it. And whether or not it's fashionable in 50 years' time, we're still going to do it. Because we do it to glorify God. Not to make society a better place, although it does incidentally do that, right? But we do it because we want to serve the poor and the downcast and the hurt and the broken and those that are hated because God commands us to and it glorifies His name. So as a result of God's gracious work, believers are obligated to be intent on performing good works, not in order to earn salvation, but as a necessary consequence of being the recipients of God's grace. So that then brings us to the next part. And, I, you know, it's good that this is here because maybe some people are a bit angry at me with my Dan Andrews thing earlier, right? And maybe we can avoid some church dissension because, you know, people are, are angry about wanting, not wanting to be nice to, to, that, um, to that fellow. So let's have a look at verse 9. But avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. Reject a divisive man after the first and second ad, uh, admonition and knowing that such a person is warped and sinning and being self-condemned. So 
we see that Paul is advising against what? Engaging in foolish controversies, genealogies, quarrels about the law. We know that there was the circumcision group that was following Paul around, right? Um, it would be a very unpopular group. Uh, but anyway, this group following Paul around, telling people that they need to be um, circumcised. And Judaizers were following Paul's ministry, telling people that they had to follow the law in order to be a follower of Christ. And we see throughout Titus, Paul's strong condemnation of this uh, divisive group, right? We see, we see it right throughout Titus. There's this strong condemnation. Um, and in fact, genealog- uh, genealogy issues, um, spellings, discussions about the law, they were mini- minutia, right? That was trivial, small details that missed the critical point of the New Testament. It was actually people missing the point. And Paul is essentially saying here, why waste time on arguments about this minutiae when we should be focusing on critical issues, unity, doing good, the kindness and love of God, living as heirs and agents of grace. At best, these arguments were a distraction. At worst, they were the evidence of full-on rebellion against the gospel, promoting division. Altogether, either way, they're useless. They're no adornment to the gospel. They're a useless discussion. And Paul hones in on this because his opponents were creating division using theology as an excuse. They may have even thought themselves as right. In fact, they would have thought themselves as right. They weren't following Paul around because they thought that they were wrong or they just wanted to cause division. They thought they were doing the right thing. I need to let these people know that they're doing wrong. Their theology is bad, right? I'll follow Paul around and I'll tell everyone, no, you need to be, you know, um, doing it this way or this is the right way. You know, Gordon Fee puts it this way, and I like how he put it. Unfortunately, all too often in the church, the orthodox in ferreting out heretics, i.e. the people who hold different views from mine, have become the divisive one. The believer must differentiate between personal preferences and the essentials of faith and ministry. We see it a lot, right? You hear it a lot. People having arguments about orthodox views, right? And those that consider themselves to be the most orthodox actually, in ferreting out heretics, become the most divisive always looking for a cult under every rock. Um, I used to be on this group that was, um, yeah, anyone know who Walter Martin is? Like Walter Martin wrote a book called Kingdom of the Cults and Kingdom of the Occult. It's quite, quite good books. And he he was very focused on, you know, um, you know, uh, addressing cults as they, as they arise, right? And this, forum this Walter Martin forum everyone just became a cult it was just tiring they were so orthodox it was like some poor teenager who's made a graphic design for a church logo has suddenly made the local church in some downtown suburb of Houston a cult because they put the dove upside down rather than facing up it was just so tiring it's so orthodox you know that they just become divisive. We do it in a lot of ways. Oh, should we play the music of this church? Or is it, uh, you know, that church? Or so it's heretical. Like, oh, just, you know, it's uh, just these constant bickerings, right? And, and we, we even have theological other uh, differences that, that people play on. You know, let's, let's, let's jump on a hot button issue, right? Let's. Yeah, while I'm while I'm jumping around and you know, hot buttoning things, let's talk about the tithe, right? You know, some people are um, very pro tithe. Some people don't believe the tithe is for today, right? But I've seen these two groups of people go at it like they're playing British bulldogs to the death. You know, it's, I I was once in a church. Um, 
where the church wasn't growing and the prophet came in. Prophet came in. I'll be very careful. I'm not going to name anyone. Um, and they said, the church isn't growing because people aren't tithing. And you should have seen the zealousness from that point that people went at each other. Well, that person is a false teacher. And and then the other side of it was um, uh, one group of people saying, well, we need to see all of the leaders' bank account statements so we can um, do a division to see if the leadership are actually tithing. And it... Yeah, Chris Stewart was around at that point of time where things are happening like crazy in that that particular church. But my goodness, people going at it. You know what that that argument was? Minutia. You know what it's not? Important. (laughs) How we pray for the sick, right? How we pray for the sick becomes a, a point of argument. Or should we lay our hands on or not? You know, or should we anoint with oil or not? Or should it be the elder or someone else? Or does elder mean leader? I've seen this descend into complete argument, right? I went and prayed for someone as a young pastor and they said that I was the wrong person to pray. It should have been an elder of the church. And, you know, how do we define elder, right? So did Get around that now. I just ask Ian to do everything. You're going to pray for someone, ask Ian. It's all Ian. <laughs> but it's a reality. It's minutiae, isn't it? If we find someone who's sick, what should we do? We should pray for them. If we, if we have the opportunity to be generous to, towards the church and to give, we should give, right? It's minutiae. The, the, the theological point is minutiae. Whether or not, you know, we have keys under the back of a sermon or not. Again, isn't that minutiae? It's just, it's just music under the back of a sermon. But people get caught up on these things. And they have arguments and they bicker and get angry at each other. And who cares? Who gives a rip? You know what God's really important about? What he's really interested in is how you're treating other people. He's really interested in how you're treating other people. And he's more interested in how you deal with other people when you disagree with them than you being theologically right. We often miss the main point that we should be generous and give to God, that we should pray for the sick, that we should worship God, that we should preach the word faithfully, that we should treat each other well. Unity in the community of believers is more important than being right in the minutiae. I mean, if we're wrong in the big stuff, right? No, Paul says at the beginning, if we're wrong in the big stuff, then we're real wrong. Like, that's, that's problematic. Like, if you're saying that Jesus wasn't the Son of God, problem. Like, that's not minutiae. That's like the main game, right? You're not even in the game anymore. You're so far out of the stadium, you're running laps around flaming Swanson Street at that point. Like, that's, that's not, that's, you're out of the game. But if it's minutiae, small theological issues, big whoop, more interested about how you're treating others. Paul promotes unity in the community of believers and discourages unnecessary conflicts. What's interesting to note is that a person who is causing conflict is not only um, not only doing something that's, you know, annoying to Paul. Paul says they're actually sinning. It's sinful for us to be causing disunity. And in fact, Paul uses very strong language. Reject them. People who cause disunity cause way more pain, way more suffering for people than those who play the keys underneath the back of a sermon, right? No, I'm not asking for that right now, Michael, just in case. You did look at me then like, is, is he just trying to give me like a mental thing there? <laughs> um, 
when our disagreement or discontent foments division or disputes in the church, then we're actually in full-on rebellion. If we are cultivating division, that's full-on rebellion. We're sinning. And in fact, we're causing other people to sin as well. So then Paul finishes Titus this way. When I send Artemis to you, or Titus, be diligent to come to Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. Send Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their journey with haste that they may lack nothing. And let our people also learn to maintain good works to meet urgent needs that they may not be unfruitful. That's an important exhortation, isn't it? Maintain good works to meet urgent needs that they may not be unfruitful. Now, Micah, I'll get you to come up. (laughs) Yeah. We need to help others. We need to support others, especially those in need. There is an importance on caring for one another and being practical in providing assistance where needed. Christianity must be practical. That's where Titus ends, right? Christianity must be practical. All Christians must learn that good works, specifically those that provide for people with pressing needs, must be the logical and natural extension of submitting to the salvation and lordship of Christ. Not just by creating institutional helps. That's not, that's not nothing, right? I'm not saying it's not the way that, that we should be doing it, but it's not just by creating institutional helps like the Salvation Army or food pantries or organisations like Compassion, but we must be practical. The natural extension of our faith is to personally maintain good works and meet urgent needs. We must not be fruitless. So, can I answer the question that I first posed at the beginning? How then should we live? How then should we live? Like this, with good conduct and respect for authority, with gentleness and peace, with kindness that reflects the love of God, spirit-filled and spiritually renewed and justified, doing good in unity with other believers. How then should we live as the heirs and agents of grace, maintaining good works and meeting urgent needs? So can we do a heart check this morning? Where are you in living this way? And where can you do better? I'm going to ask everyone to stand. We're actually going to sing that that song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, right? Because I want us to sing that that very poignant line, and the things of this world grow strangely dim. We often try and live in a way that pleases our culture. But what do we need to look at in our own lives and go, where do we need to do better? Do you simply need to know God's grace? Do you need to do better at being an agent of grace? Are your actions needing reformation to be changed by God? We need to turn our eyes towards Jesus. We need to glorify our Lord not just with our words, but with our actions. We need to live as the heirs of grace and we need to act as its agents. Heirs 
invitation that God has given us. Ages.